0: That's shopify.com dot slash special offer.
1: everyone, Thanks for tuning in to episode number 209 of our Civil War Podcast. My name is Rich
0: and I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. In the last show, as y'all will recall, we talked about the Battle of Richmond, which took place on August 30th, 1862. And we said it was one of the most lopsided victories of the Civil War as the Federals lost over 4,000 men captured by the Confederate force led by Kirby Smith.
1: The road to Lexington lay open to Kirby Smith after his victory at the Battle of Richmond, and the Confederate Army of Kentucky entered that city there in the heart of the bluegrass on September 2nd to an enthusiastic reception. One of the rebels remembered that, quote, the balconies, housetops, and windows, in fact every place available for view, was filled with people cheering and waving handkerchiefs while we marched through the streets.
0: After entering Lexington, Kirby Smith sent detachments probing west toward Louisville and north toward Cincinnati, and on September 4th, Frankfurt was captured, becoming the only capital of a loyal state to fall to the Confederates during the Civil War.
1: As we've mentioned before, when Kirby Smith had moved north into Kentucky in the middle of August, Braxton Bragg hadn't been able to follow immediately. That's because Bragg was still waiting for all of his troops to arrive in Chattanooga, in southeastern Tennessee, after their movement from Mississippi, and Bragg's army wasn't ready to march northward until late August. As you guys will recall, in mid-June, Bragg had taken over command from PGT Beauregard when Beauregard, after the Confederate retreat from Corinth, had taken an unauthorized leave of absence and was relieved by Jefferson Davis. When his troops marched out of Chattanooga in late August 1862, Braxton Bragg was 45 years old. Kirby Smith, in a letter to his wife, described Bragg as, quote, a grim old fellow, but a true soldier. On the other hand, in his famous memoirs, Confederate soldier Private Sam Watkins would say of Bragg, quote, not a single soldier in the whole army ever loved or respected him. Well, in any case, Bragg hailed from North Carolina, and his father pushed him into a career in the military. He graduated from West Point in 1837 and spent the next 18 years in the U.S. Army. After graduating 5th in his class at West Point, Bragg was commissioned as 2nd Lieutenant in the 3rd Artillery Regiment. He was sent to Florida and saw action against mm-hmm. the Seminoles. Bragg's health failed as a result of the harsh conditions and stress, and he spent most of 1838 recovering, but nonetheless received promotion to first lieutenant. He also acquired a reputation as a rigid and quarrelsome officer. In 1845, Bragg was assigned to Zachary Taylor's army in Texas, and in the ensuing war with Mexico, Bragg distinguished himself by his talent as a drillmaster, as well as his administrative ability. He was breveted to captain in 1846 for gallantry, although he was also hated by the men under his command, some of whom reportedly tried to kill him. Bragg especially distinguished himself commanding a battery of artillery in the Battle of Monterey, and also at the Battle of Buena Vista, earning him brevets to Major and Lieutenant Colonel. Following the Mexican War, though, Bragg became restless and dissatisfied with the lack of progress in his military career, so he resigned his commission in 1856 and purchased a sugar plantation in Louisiana. When Louisiana seceded from the Union in January 1861, Bragg became head of the state's military forces. He was then appointed a brigadier general in the Confederate Army in the first week of March 1861 and sent to Pensacola, Florida, where he quickly turned raw volunteers into well-drilled, disciplined soldiers. He was promoted to major general in September. Following the fall of Forts Henry and Donelson in February 1862, Bragg led his men from Florida to join the Confederate Army that Albert Sidney Johnston and P.G.T. Beauregard were concentrating at Corinth, Mississippi. Then Bragg commanded a corps in the fighting at the Battle of Shiloh in early April. And then, just six weeks before his meeting with Kirby Smith in Chattanooga, Bragg had been elevated to Army command after Jefferson Davis sacked Beauregard. As we stated previously, at that meeting in Chattanooga, which started on the last day of July and continued into the early hours of August 1st, Bragg and Kirby Smith had agreed to cooperate on a joint campaign to reconquer Middle Tennessee, recapture Nashville, and smash the federal army led by Don Carlos Buell.
0: But after Kirby Smith left to begin his part of the campaign, he succumbed to the Siren Song of Kentucky. And he decided that liberating the Bluegrass State, rather than reconquering Middle Tennessee, would now be the immediate Confederate goal. And so he marched his small army north in the middle of August.
1: When Kirby Smith sent him a message saying that, oh, by the way, I'm changing the plan and invading Kentucky, Braxton Bragg, as the senior officer, could have raised a fuss and attempted to hold Smith to the original strategy – But for whatever reason, Bragg declined to do so. Instead, Bragg replied to Kirby Smith by basically saying, Okay, sounds good to me. And so once his army was finally ready to move out and march from Chattanooga, Bragg now had no choice but to follow Kirby Smith's lead.
0: While he had waited in Chattanooga, Bragg took the opportunity to reorganize his 30,000-man army for the upcoming campaign he created two wings, each composed of two divisions. The right wing would be commanded by Major General Leonidas Polk. As y'all might recall, Polk had commanded a corps at Shiloh.
1: Polk was a West Point graduate, but he'd immediately resigned from the army and had spent the last 35 years in the Episcopal ministry, rising to bishop in Louisiana. A military novice, therefore, he owed his high rank to his friendship with Jefferson Davis. Polk's wing was comprised of two divisions led by Major General Jones Withers of Alabama and Major General Benjamin Cheatham from Tennessee. Bragg's left wing was commanded by the highly capable Major General William Hardee, who had commanded a corps at Shiloh. Hardee, a Georgian, was one of the best-known generals on either side because he had authored a pre-war tactics manual that was used extensively by both the Union and Confederate armies. He was also a former commandant of cadets at West Point. The left wing contained two veteran divisions, led by Major Generals Samuel Jones of Virginia and Kentucky-born Simon Bolivar Buckner. Buckner had just been exchanged after surrendering Fort Donelson to Ulysses S. Grant back in February.
0: Jones fell ill shortly before the campaign opened, and so he was left behind in Chattanooga. His division would be led by Brigadier General J. Patton Anderson, who was from Florida.
1: Bragg made two other changes to the Army that would prove to be significant later on. First, he divided his 6,000 cavalrymen into two equal-sized brigades under Colonels John C. Wharton and Joseph Wheeler. The two colonels were to report to the wing commanders, with the result that Bragg had no mounted detachment to use at his discretion for scouting or for shielding the army's movement. Second, in Chattanooga, the army's chief of staff left his post due to sickness and Bragg decided to wear both hats, Army Commander and Chief of Staff, during the upcoming campaign. This was a heavy load for any general to bear, and the strain would tell on Bragg.
0: While Bragg reorganized in Chattanooga, the Federal Army of the Ohio continued to struggle toward that city, It hadn't been a very pleasant summer for this army or its commander, 44-year-old Major General Don Carlos Buell.
1: Buell was born in Ohio, but after the death of his father, he was raised by an uncle in Indiana. Buell graduated from West Point in 1841 and was assigned to the 3rd Infantry Regiment upon graduation. He served briefly in the Second Seminole War. In 1843, he was court-martialed for striking an an enlisted man with the flat of his sword, and although he was acquitted, he had acquired a reputation as being a harsh disciplinarian. He served with with distinction in Mexico, and won brevets to captain and major. Severely wounded at the Battle of Churubusco, he was soon transferred to staff duties, and served in the Adjutant General's office for the next thirteen years. At the start of the Civil War, Buell was stationed in California. He was recalled to Washington, and even before he arrived, he was commissioned a Brigadier General of Volunteers. In September 1861, at the urging of George McClellan, Buell was assigned to Division Command in the Army of the Potomac. But that was a position he held only briefly, because in November, again at the urging of Little Mac, Buell was appointed to replace William Tecumseh Sherman as commander of the Department of the Ohio with headquarters in Louisville. Grant's victories at Forts Henry and Donelson in February 1862 allowed Buell to enter Nashville unopposed. He was elevated to Major General in March 1862 and then, marching to join Grant at Pittsburgh Landing, Buell arrived there in time for his troops to take a major role in the Union counterattack on the second day of the Battle of Shiloh. After the Federals captured Corinth at the end of May, Halleck ordered Buell east toward Chattanooga with instructions to repair the Memphis and Charleston Railroad as he advanced.
0: But after leaving Corinth in June, as the Army of the Ohio moved eastward across northern Mississippi and Alabama toward Chattanooga, Confederate cavalry raids by Nathan Bedford Forrest and John Hunt Morgan harassed its advance and threatened the Yankees' supply line. Always a cautious commander anyhow, Buell's advance slowed to a crawl in July and August.
1: With the rebel cavalry wreaking havoc on its supply line, the Army of the Ohio spent much of the summer on half-rations. Despite the hunger and hardship his troops faced, Buell forbade foraging, Like his mentor, George McClellan, Buell thought that war should be a contest between the two armies, with as little disruption to the lives of southern civilians as possible. But Buell's orders regarding foraging provoked a lot of resentment in the ranks, and the hungry and frustrated men resorted to plundering the countryside anyway, which was sharply sharply rebuked from headquarters, which just deepened Buell's unpopularity with the men. As August was drawing to a close, Buell's army was still inching its way toward Chattanooga. Two divisions under Major Generals Alexander McCook and Thomas L. Crittenden stood 12 miles southwest of Chattanooga at Stevenson, Alabama. Several other components of the army stretched westward along the railroad toward Athens, Alabama. Still another part of the Army ranged between Murfreesboro and the Cumberland Plateau in a vain attempt to halt the troublesome Confederate cavalry raids. This region was a running sore for Buell as the rebel horsemen snapped up numerous detachments of Yankee soldiers, including capturing a major portion of the Army of the Ohio's cavalry. By August 19th, word of Kirby Smith's movement and Bragg's aggressive intentions caused Buell to begin concentrating his army near Deckard, Tennessee to await developments.
2: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast.
0: Braxton Bragg and the Confederate Army of the Mississippi left Chattanooga on August 28, two days before Kirby Smith's victory at the Battle of Richmond. In the Eastern Theater in northern Virginia, Robert E. Lee was just about to thrash John Pope at the Second Battle of Manassas.
1: Bragg's columns wound northward over the Cumberland Plateau and arrived at Sparta, Tennessee, about 60 or so miles as the crow flies north of Chattanooga, on September 6, Buell reacted slowly to the news that the rebels were on the move, initially thinking he would fight Bragg near Sparta, but instead deciding to order his army back to Nashville. By September 6th, much of the Army of the Ohio was in Nashville or nearby. Reinforcements from Grant's army brought Buell's strength to about 55,000 men. Despite Buell's fears for Nashville, Bragg actually continued on north toward Kentucky, the Army of the Mississippi entered the Bluegrass State at Tompkinsville and by September 13th had reached the vicinity of Glasgow, about 35 miles east of Bowling Green. From that point, Bragg was directly threatening the Louisville and Nashville Railroad, which was Buell's lifeline between his main supply base at Louisville and the forward federal position at Nashville. On the evening of September 13th, Withers' division of Confederates camped at Cave City, and was thus positioned to move north and cut the turnpike and railroad. Also that night, Bragg's men made contact with John Scott's horsemen from Kirby Smith's army, who reported on the Army of Kentucky's situation around Lexington. At any rate, 12 miles north of Cave City, the turnpike and railroad crossed the Green River at Munfordville, Since the previous December, a garrison of federal soldiers had protected this strategic road and rail crossing, which was one of the most important spots on Buell's supply line. Union troops had fortified the south side of the river with two redoubts and connecting trenches. The field fortifications were known as Fort Craig and were defended by about 2,000 infantry and some artillery under Colonel John T. Wilder of Indiana. Federal scouts had reported Bragg's approach, and the Union command in Louisville had started off troops to aid Wilder in response to his request for help.
0: Colonel Scott's rebel cavalry had brushed up against the federal garrison at Munfordville on their way to meet up with Bragg's army. On the evening of September 13th, Scott had even demanded the garrison surrender, which Wilder promptly
1: refused. Upon reaching Bragg's army and making contact with Withers' lead brigade under Brigadier General James Chalmers, Scott inaccurately reported to Chalmers, quote, that the Federals had from 1,200 to 1,800 men, that no reinforcements could possibly reach them, and their works were nothing more than rifle pits, and they perhaps unfinished, which could be easily taken by a bold dash with an infantry force, end quote. In response to Scott's incorrect assessment of the situation, Chalmers, on his own, decided to try to immediately take Munfordville.
0: At 10 p.m. on the evening of September 13th, Chalmers set off with his 2,500 Mississippians and drew up in front of Fort Craig before dawn on Sunday, September 14th, 1862. Placing his four cannon atop Lewis's Hill, a piece of high ground overlooking the Union position, Chalmers sent a battalion-sized unit, Richard's sharpshooters, forward to engage the Federal pickets.
1: Chalmers then deployed the 10th Mississippi to the west toward the federal right flank, while three other regiments, the 7th, 9th, and 29th Mississippi, would attack from the east in what was to be a coordinated pincer assault. Chalmers' last regiment, the 44th Mississippi, remained in reserve. The first shots of the struggle for Munfordville were fired about 5 a.m., as Richard's sharpshooters made contact with Wilder's pickets. Right from the get-go, Chalmers' plan started to break down. On Wilder's orders, the Federal pickets quickly withdrew back to Fort Craig before the 7th, 9th, and 29th Mississippi could get into position. The Confederate artillery on Lewis's Hill didn't have the range to hit the Yankees, and the guns were forced to move forward where they were pounded by the Federal cannon. As the Federal pickets retreated, they set fire to some buildings to prevent their use by the advancing rebels, and seeing this, Colonel R.A. Smith of the 10th Mississippi thought it signaled the start of the Confederate attack, and he sent his men forward from the west. The defenders concentrated their fire on the 10th, killing Colonel Scott and pinning down the hapless regiment for three hours in front of the fort the 44th Mississippi went to the aid of the 10th, but according to the regiment's major, it was, quote, saluted with heavy and successive volleys of musketry, end quote, that killed its colonel, and the 44th also became pinned down in front of the fort. Meanwhile, from his position over on the east side of the fort, Chalmers realized that things were going badly awry. Unexpectedly, the battle had started before all of his units got into position. Desperately, he sent the 9th and 29th Mississippi forward, but Federal artillery broke the 9th and forced the 29th to give ground. The 7th Mississippi moved forward to support the 29th, and both regiments then moved forward to attack the Federals in a headlong charge. But as they reached the Union position, artillery fire from the right broke their momentum and forced them to fall back. It was discovered that the blasts of artillery were friendly fire, originating from Colonel Scott's horse artillery, in a misguided effort to assist the assault. But by the time the confusion was straightened out, the Confederate attack had stalled.
0: By 9.30 that Sunday morning, it was all over, and the Confederates pulled back to lick their wounds. Chalmers' brigade had received a bloody nose, losing 285 men killed, wounded, and missing in a little over four hours of fighting. One third of the 10th Mississippi lay dead or wounded in front of Fort Craig on the federal right. Wilder's losses totaled 37 men.
1: His pride stung, Chalmers next demanded the fort's unconditional surrender, to which Wilder responded, I shall defend myself until overpowered. The two officers, though, did work out a truce, and the rest of the day was spent collecting the rebel dead and wounded. That evening, Chalmers withdrew back southward.
0: While the fighting was raging that morning at Munfordville, Colonel Cyrus Dunham arrived on the scene with 400 men of the 50th Indiana. After the battle was over, Dunham, now the senior officer present, took command of the Union garrison.
1: The railroad was still open to a few miles north of Munfordville, and the Federals had telegraph communication with headquarters in Louisville. Dunham and Wilder fully expected a renewed Confederate assault, and so spent the next two days, September 15th and 16th, strengthening Fort Craig. Reinforcements streamed in, and by the morning of Tuesday the 16th, there were 4,000 Union soldiers defending Munfordville. Meanwhile, at Bragg's headquarters in Glasgow, the news of Chalmers' misadventures caused some consternation. Bragg was well aware that the defeat at Munfordville represented the Army of the Mississippis' first battle since he had taken over. Deciding he didn't want that failure to set the tone for his tenure in command, Bragg resolved to overwhelm the Union garrison. Munfordville happened to be Simon Bolivar Buckner's hometown, and his local knowledge was put to use for planning. And so late on September 15th, the Army of the Mississippi set out, and the next morning the Confederates made contact with Dunham's outposts. The Federal pickets once again quickly fell back into the fort.
0: Hardee's men skirmished with the defenders while Polk's troops maneuvered into position over on the Green River's north bank where high ground dominated the Union position. By late that Tuesday afternoon, Bragg's 25,000 men had the Federal garrison surrounded. Confederate artillery stood ready to pound Fort Craig from all sides.
1: Well aware that he had an overwhelming advantage, Bragg sent a note to Dunham requesting the garrison's surrender. Dunham replied, quote, Your note of this date received. As much as I shall regret the terrible consequences of an assault upon the works under my command, I shall defend them to the utmost, and God help the right." End quote. But Wilder, who delivered this message, prevailed upon Dunham to hold a council of war and consider Bragg's offer more fully. The Confederates agreed to a truce until 9 p.m. that evening. The telegraph line to Louisville actually remained open, and at 7 p.m. Dunham sent a message to his superior, acting Major General Charles C. Gilbert. After explaining the situation, Dunham admitted he had grave doubts about the garrison's ability to hold out. Gilbert, shocked by what he read, immediately relieved Dunham and restored Wilder to command. Taking his demotion hard, Dunham fired back that he would take up a musket and fight in the trenches. Gilbert replied that Dunham should place himself under arrest, and reaffirmed that Wilder was once again in command at Munfordville. While this drama played out, the other senior officers in the garrison discussed amongst themselves what should be done. These men felt they were in uncharted territory since the last surrender of a large United States military force had occurred in the Revolutionary War.
0: The previous day, over 12,000 men of the federal garrison at Harpers Ferry, Virginia, had surrendered to Stonewall Jackson as part of Robert E. Lee's invasion of Maryland after Second Manassas. But the news of the Harpers Ferry surrender hadn't yet reached the Yankees at Munfordville.
1: Right. Well, In any case, in the end, as Wilder explained later, quote It was the unanimous expression that unless enabled by reinforcements to hold the north side of the river, we could make no successful resistance. All, however, decided to resist unless full evidence should be given of the overwhelming force of the enemy. In other words, Wilder and the others would surrender if the Confederates offered convincing proof that they tremendously outnumbered the garrison. Accordingly, shortly before the expiration of the truce, a request for this evidence was sent across the lines to Bragg. The Federal's unusual request took Bragg by surprise. While the Confederate commander considered how to reply, Munfordville native Simon Bolivar Buckner took pity on Wilder. Buckner sympathized with Wilder's predicament, since he'd surrendered Fort Donelson to Grant in February, and so he was the only senior officer present on either side who had experience in this kind of thing. Buckner went to Bragg and offered his services, so to speak, in arranging the garrison's capitulation. Bragg sent Wilder a message demanding unconditional surrender, but included a cover note from Buckner that read, I am directed by General Bragg to say that no other conditions than those prescribed in his note can be given. He requires an unconditional surrender of your forces and stores, etc., and authorizes me to accept the surrender.
0: By this point, darkness had fallen, and both Confederates and Federals settled down to get what sleep they could, fully expecting a battle in the morning. But at about 2 a.m., a blindfolded Union officer was led into Buckner's tent. It was John Wilder who explained his presence by saying, quote, I have come to find out what I ought to do, end quote. Buckner was touched by Wilder's trust, although others might consider it shocking innocence on the Union commander's part. But at any rate, Buckner later said, quote, I wouldn't have deceived that man under those circumstances for anything.
1: After giving Wilder a brief tour of the Confederate positions, Buckner shared his wisdom the best he could with the Union officer, but started off by reminding Wilder that, quote, you are in command of your troops, and you must decide for yourself what you ought to do. Buckner pointed out, though, the ring of rebel artillery that would open fire at first light, and told Wilder he should, quote, Judge how long your command would live under that fire. After thinking it over for a moment, Wilder stated that he would surrender. Instead of immediately accepting the offer, Buckner counseled his enemy, No, Colonel, if you have information that would induce you to think that the sacrificing of every man at this place would gain your army an advantage elsewhere, it is your duty to do it. After mulling this over, Wilder said, I believe I will surrender.
0: And so both men went to Bragg's tent, and in the early morning hours of September 17, 1862, Colonel John Wilder surrendered the 4,000 men of the federal garrison at Munfordville without putting up a fight.
1: The capitulation at Munfordville on September 17th was one of the largest surrenders of U.S. troops during the Civil War. At six o'clock that morning, the Federal garrison marched out of Fort Craig and stacked arms. The prisoners were paroled and sent off toward Union lines. As Wilder's men trudged off, several hundred miles to the east, the Army of the Potomac and the Army of Northern Virginia were locked in bloody combat at the Battle of Antietam.
0: With the capture of Mumfordville, Braxton Bragg had his first victory as Army commander. That evening he sent a report to Richmond that read in part, quote, "...an unconditional surrender of the whole garrison was made without our firing a gun. We received some 4,000 prisoners and an equal number of small arms, 10 pieces of artillery, and munitions. The prisoners will be paroled. My position must be exceedingly embarrassing to Buell and his army." They dare not attack me, and yet no other escape seems to be open to them.
1: Bragg continued, My admiration of and love for my army cannot be expressed. To its patient toil and admirable discipline, I am indebted for all the success to which is attended this perilous undertaking. The men are much jaded and somewhat destitute, but cheerful and confident without a murmur. Although this report was a bit over the top, the fact remained that Bragg had achieved a significant victory, since with the capture of Munfordville, his army stood squarely between Buell and his supply base at Louisville. Bragg was in a strong position to block any move toward toward Louisville by Buell. Coupled with Kirby Smith's success at Richmond and occupation of Lexington, the Confederates' Kentucky campaign was off to a good start. But Bragg couldn't afford to rest on his laurels, since Buell had not been idle. The Army of the Ohio had left Nashville, entered Kentucky, and by September 14th was concentrated around Bowling Green, about 40 miles southwest of Munfordville. Buell made no effort to relieve the garrison at Munfordville, because he would rather draw Bragg into an attack on the Army of the Ohio. But at the same time, Bragg was expecting that Buell would try to fight his way north toward Louisville. So Bragg prepared to receive an attack by the Federals.
0: Shortly after Wilder's surrender, the Army of the Ohio began probing toward Munfordville. Buell moved cautiously, since he knew the Green River presented a formidable defensive barrier. He also believed Bragg's army was 40,000 strong, although he didn't have the cavalry to confirm this estimate.
1: Cut off from Louisville, the Army of the Ohio was depleting its rations, but Buell reasoned that Bragg was probably even shorter on rations and might be forced to move to find foodstuff and forage. And that turned out to be exactly the case. Bragg's army stood in a fantastic tactical situation, but logistically it was in serious trouble. Both men and animals had suffered on the march north because of the drought, and now, at Munfordville, there was also precious little to eat. The federal garrison at Munfordville, in place since the previous December, had picked the surrounding countryside clean of food and forage. Bragg's quartermaster reported that if they stayed in Munfordville more than a few days, the army would begin to starve. Judging himself too weak to assault Buell, and without supplies to stay in place and invite an attack, Bragg was forced to make a difficult decision. In the months and years to come, Bragg's decision to abandon Munfordville for Bardstown and thus allow Buell a clear path to Louisville would become one of the most controversial moments of the campaign. But Bragg really had little choice, and on September 20th, three days after capturing Munfordville, Bragg abandoned the place, and turned northeast toward Bardstown, where he expected to resupply and link up with Kirby Smith. And with that, Buell's road to Louisville was open. The Army of the Ohio hustled northward toward Kentucky's largest city, reaching it on September 25th. And as it turned out, Bragg and Kirby Smith wouldn't join forces at Bardstown. While Bragg's attention was tied up at Mumfordville, Smith focused on consolidating his gains in north-central Kentucky. And Kirby Smith also had a new worry, because the sizable federal garrison at Cumberland Gap, which Smith had bypassed on his way north, had suddenly come to life.
0: That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation.
1: And our recommendation this time is... All for the Regiment, the Army of the Ohio, 1861-1862, to by Gerald J. Prokopovich. Prokopovich ably tells the story of the Army of the Ohio, from its origins in the early months of the Civil War, through its final battle at Perryville in October 1862. His book relates how the Army of the Ohio fared in several critical campaigns in the war's western theater and looks at why its regiment-centric organization made it difficult to command, but also just as difficult for the enemy to destroy it on the battlefield. So that's All for the Regiment, the Army of the Ohio, 1861-1862, to by Gerald J. Prokopovich. You can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to 1865, a history podcast. As you can tell, Tracy hasn't been feeling that well lately, and still isn't at 100%. But she and I both do hope you'll join us again next time, when hopefully she'll be completely back up to snuff. But until then, take care.
0: Thanks, everyone. Bye.